This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, September the 15th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the weekly news panel gets together once again. Michelle McQuig, Joita Gupta, and myself discuss some ongoing public health trends that relate to apparent slipping standards of inspection. There's also thoughts to be shared about a Toronto area school board's approach to removing books from school libraries. It's a practice called book weeding, and it seems a lot of books have gone missing. And finally, a major American newspaper chain is hiring celebrity-specific reporters on the Taylor Swift and Beyonce beat, panel considers what's the value of specific entertainment journalism? All that and more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's a few policy notes coming out of the Liberal Caucus in London, Ontario. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the federal government will eliminate the GST costs associated with building new rental apartments. Essentially, GST would be waived on building materials and some contracting work. He points out that the rental market has been ignored for too long. Canadians need more buildings intended for renters, not just condos that turn into Airbnbs that are sold to foreign buyers as financial assets. So, I'm pleased to announce that we are going to be removing the federal GST for the construction of new apartment buildings, and I'm encouraging all provinces to do the same. Trudeau says current economic conditions necessitate the policy. But now, given interest rates where they are, given the challenges that people have in building uh, new apartment buildings, we realize it's the right time to step up with removing the federal GST on purpose-built apartment buildings. And we're calling on provinces. The Prime Minister wants builders to put up a wide range of rental housing. This plan is going to get more apartments built in big cities, in small towns, especially along transit lines, and they'll make sure that there are units with two or three or even more bedrooms, the kinds of places families can live and grow. The federal government is also telling Canada's big grocers to come up with a plan to stabilize food prices by Thanksgiving or else. Stats Canada data shows that the average Canadian family is paying 44% more for food than they were in 2019. Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne will meet with grocery executives next week. What we're saying to, uh, to them is enough is enough. Uh, you know, it's always a good time to fight for Canadians. It's always a good time to fight for lower prices. Uh, we're going to start next week. Uh, by the way. So this is something that is happening right now. And we're going to be in solution mode with very clear deadline and very clear outcome for Canadians. 
In another economic story, not far down the road from London, Ontario, American auto workers have started to strike. United Auto Workers Union members are engaging in small-scale strikes at plants. All three major car companies are affected. For example, about 10% of workers at three plants walked off the job last night. UAW President Sean Fain says this is all about cost of living. The price of vehicles went up 30% in the last four years. CEO pays went through the roof. They're already millionaires. They went up 40%. Our workers got 6% pay increases, and inflation went up 19%. We're going backwards. Reporter Andrew Dimebert explores the economic impact of the strike. The strike could have widespread effects on the U.S. economy. The auto industry employs nearly one million people across the country. One report warns just a 10-day strike against the three automakers will result in economic losses of $5.6 billion. Gotta love the mass media screaming from the hilltops for the last year. Cost of living! Workers are being exploited! It's too expensive to buy groceries! Workers go on strike. Ooh, this is really going to affect the economy. Ah, the good old mass media. One note on this. Obviously, that's the American side of the auto workers equation. Auto unions in Canada have set a Monday night strike deadline. So although that story is American at the moment, in about 72 hours, it could become Canadian. Coming back to Canada, the Yukon government says its official website is back online after a cyber attack took it down on Thursday. The territory's official website was one of four that went down across the country, along with Manitoba, Nunavut, and Prince Edward Island. The governments of Prince Edward Island and Yukon say their sites went down due to denial of service attacks, where websites are overwhelmed with traffic to the point of crashing. Manitoba's government says it was a network and server issue, but the cause of Nunavut's site going down remains unknown. Yukon says it got its website back online Thursday, but other sites operated by the territorial governments were not functioning. IT professionals are working on resolving those internal system issues. And another cyber attack story to tell you about, the Weather Network continues to grapple with a cyber attack. Karen Rebo has the latest. The attack took down at least part of the weather network and the two websites are still not providing full weather data four days later. The sites have restored the current temperature and forecast data, but info such as whether it's sunny or raining right now is missing and they're unable to send their own weather alerts through push notifications to app users. However, parent company Pelmorex also tells the Canadian press the attack is not affecting the alert ready system. It runs for federal and provincial governments. That sends emergency notifications to cell phones, radio and TV stations when very dangerous weather is imminent. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Karen. Cybersecurity will be the topic of today's daily poll, but before you get today's question, here are yesterday's results. You were asked, how would you describe your setup at home when it comes to charging your devices? 42.9% of you said efficient, 57.1% of you said cluttered, and 0% of you said chaotic. Today's daily poll, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, all about cybersecurity concerns, with several provincial websites shut down by cybersecurity attacks yesterday. How concerned are you about cybersecurity? Very somewhat, a little, or not at all? all 
Amanda Shikarchi, obviously there's a way to look at this question that's very personal, your own cybersecurity, but I'm really hoping the conversation's a bit more broad to the level of governments and institutions, because you're talking about four provincial governments yesterday, you're talking about MGM resorts, you're talking about the weather network, we're talking about large-scale institutions just this week alone, dealing with major, major cyber attacks, I'm gonna put myself in somewhat close to very. To me, it feels like government websites should probably be some of the most cyber secure and the least vulnerable. I totally agree. Definitely like the somewhat to vary, especially because these websites are, you know, we, this important information, as you said, like the weather network being attacked, like, you know, the, these are like, you know, important, you know, it's not like some smaller website, which, you know, a cyber attack isn't fun anyway, but I think that there definitely has to be, you know, more precautions um, to take the right steps to have the, the the websites being secure. Megan, fund Megan Gilmore filling in for Alex Smythe today. Fundamentally, this boils down to money. Can you afford great IT departments who can ward off <laughs> these cyber attacks? And even sometimes when you can, the cyber criminals are pretty good at what they do. But uh, the, the importance of a government website, maybe too much so to a certain extent, really does have me concerned about what kind of vulnerabilities might exist inside the digital infrastructure of people who are responsible for a lot of our data. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it should. Also, to clarify, it was provincial and territorial websites that went down yesterday. But um, Thank yeah, you for I that, be, Megan. You're welcome. Former Yukoner Yukon here uh, coming out. I do actually have some thoughts on the Yukon government's website as a whole, but that's a whole other thing. Um, yeah, I would say I'm with somewhat to vary. Um, one of my concerns would be that we... Is, and I could be wrong here, but from what I've seen, I don't think we often hear our federal government talking about what their plans are to deal with cybersecurity and cyber attacks. And I think this is an issue that faces all levels of government. Municipalities get hit. Hospitals yep. get hit yep. by cyber attacks, uh, which is a whole, like, that is a concerning issue. And I, I think one of my main concerns has to do with coordinated efforts across governments to keep on top of this and, and to deal with it. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, in terms of the hospital or health side, Newfoundland and Labrador is still investigating yeah. how their system got hit uh, not long ago. I believe it was earlier this year, late last year, they yeah. got hit in a big way. So this is certainly something that really, really matters. Although I'll, I live on the other side of this, which is maybe we uh, need to make our make our healthcare systems and our provincial systems more digitized. But if you're going to do that, it has to come with the cybersecurity piece as well. I can't just yeah. say I want this world to be more digital and more <laughs> digitally accessible but then also make all those uh, items uh, more vulnerable. So I know sometimes I run in circles on this topic. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you vote. How concerned are you about cybersecurity? Obviously, I'd love for you to get a little more specific in regards to a government or institutions. You can vote on the poll on social media, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. Feedback at feedback, feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. And the phone number is 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the news panel gets together. Michelle McQuig enjoyed a Gupta. We'll discuss the concerning trend of 
what appear to be lacking public health inspection standards in places like central kitchens and serve daycares or long-term care homes in Ontario. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. That music means the news panel has officially assembled for another week. Saying good morning to Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, everyone. And hello to Joita. Hello, folks. Okay, there's lots to get to today. Let's jump right in. The fallout from the E. coli outbreak in Calgary daycares continues. There have been over 300 cases of infection. There have been over 20 children hospitalized because of the E. coli infections. Investigators have been able to pinpoint, have not, have not been able to pinpoint the exact item that caused the outbreak. They have determined that it came from a central kitchen that supplies daycares with food. The kitchen underwent an inspection that found improper sanitation, food transport, and live cockroaches at the facility. Yum. Dr. Kristen Feist is an epidemiologist and a parent of a child at one of the daycares. Dr. Feist is curious where accountability should lay after violations are found. How many chances does one organization get to resolve these issues? Should there not be more frequent follow-up if they are repeat offenders? Should they not be under higher scrutiny, especially since they're feeding children? I feel like, you know, we need to be extra careful that food safety and handling procedures are, are being followed. Now, the investigation I referenced was from September the 5th, but this central kitchen had had violations before, and opposition leader Rachel Notley is dismayed that nothing was done after health violations were found at the kitchen in the spring. From what we can tell, inspectors just walked away from this problematic site for almost five months. Why? We need answers on this. And why has it taken the UCP government a full week to say anything at all about this crisis? Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is not ready to make any policy changes at the moment. When we find out, and I hope we do soon, when we find out precisely what food product in the kitchen was the problem, that will allow us to be able to understand what we need to do to, um, to make more regulations. But that's, that's going to be the sort of the second step. Right now, everybody is focused on making sure those little ones get well. In a sort of related story, Ontario's Ombudsman has released a report about how long-term care homes responded to the COVID pandemic. Paul Dubé says the Ministry of Long-Term Care needs clear rules for in-person inspections to prepare for future pandemics. Dubé says the ministry was caught completely off guard in 2020. Our investigation identified problems with nearly every aspect of the inspection branch's processes during the first COVID wave. The ministry had no plan or guidelines for how to do inspections during a pandemic. So none were done for seven weeks. Now, Dave, now I know what you're saying. Dave, come on. First wave of the pandemic was hard on all of us. None of us knew what we were doing. Well, Dubé points out that the inspections branch was lacking throughout the pandemic. The inspections branch also did little or often nothing when homes did file reports about COVID-19 outbreaks. Even when the inspections resumed and violations of the law were found, the inspections branch often took the least severe enforcement action available. 
In both stories, the conclusion seems to be that some of these places were performing woefully during inspections, but nobody really did anything about it. So I wonder if there's a conversation to be had about, quote, slipping standards. Michelle, I know this is a little bit speculative and you hate it when I do it, but what's your level of concern about the quality of inspections and enforcement in key areas of public health? Yeah, I, I have to say this is this is a peak Dave topic in that it's taking disparate threads and bringing it back to a very unified theme. And I think it's one that's worth pursuing because you're right. I think they're I think you're right to identify some some common threads here. And we see that not too infrequently across a lot of public areas. We see that with education inspection results, it's different in that case. It's not inspection so much as standardized testing and other metrics that are applied. But we see quite often in, in this in, in health and in, in food safety and in other areas metrics or measurements of of progress or of of quality control that get that send up red flags that don't necessarily get heated and i do think that's an interesting uh phenomenon that you're tapping into here not not, not necessarily new or unique to this time but definitely interesting Juita, what about you? Again, understanding this is speculation in the case of Calgary, they're still trying to pinpoint exactly what happened here. But I think that at least my thesis is fair. What's your level of concern about the quality of inspections and enforcement in public health? I think, as Michelle pointed out, this is not a unique situation. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know about uh, what happened in Calgary. But we do realize that this isn't the first time that similar concerns about um, the quality of care, the standards of care in critical sectors of the uh, of of our of our society and economy, we had healthcare or education or daycares. It's not the first time that a red flag has gone up, and it's not the first time that inspections, when they've been done, have found uh, tremendous gaps and uh, led to questions being asked about not just the underlying issues, but raised questions about the frequency and accuracy of inspection. So we sort of go over this again and again, and it's not unusual. If you think back even to the Walkerton crisis in 2000 and the contaminated uh, municipal water supply, there were a lot of questions being asked at that time, that's almost 25 years ago now, mm -hmm. about the quality of the water supply, but also about where inspections had gone awry. And at that time, one of the things that had been pointed out, now mind you, this was 20 years ago, was the fact that inspections had in fact been privatized. Now, I will admit my ignorance on whether or not in this particular case, looking at the E. coli breakout, uh, whether those inspections had been privatized or not, because that is a whole other level of concern when we talk about government accountability and regulation being, for all intents and purposes, outsourced to a private entity. What who keeps who is accountable for the people who are supposed to keep uh, critical sectors of the economy accountable? Right. So it becomes this whole rabbit hole that we can go down. So I don't really know. Um, for a fact whether uh, inspections in Alberta were privatized or not. But I know that for people who have been concerned about the standards uh, in critical aspects of our of our society and economy, I know that the privatization of inspections is a huge source of concern. You asked about the pandemic, and yes, I think a certain amount of grace is allowed for the fact that it was the pandemic and for reasons that 
I don't feel qualified to get into. Nobody was prepared for the pandemic. And yet there were systemic problems with the long-term care sector and the inspections of long-term term sectors, uh, the long-term care sector that I suspect uh, predate the pandemic. So the pandemic has probably aggravated the problem, but the systemic issues or the fault lines that we're talking about today or trying to grapple with this morning uh, likely predate the pandemic. Uh, Joita used the word accountability there, and I do believe the word accountability is important. Uh, certainly, whatever, the central kitchen is is going to take its beatings from both, like, the media and the public and social media. It'll, it'll get its lashes. But I do think about accountability and where that should lay at the feet of inspectors. Because as someone who's an inspector or an auditor, you are given a ton of responsibility. I wonder if you're given the proper authority to go enforce a failed violation or something mm -hmm. that's not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. I think this may come down to a policy and procedure side. I understand that if a central kitchen is supplying food to daycares or nursing homes or hospitals or wherever, there's going to be that 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 knee-jerk reaction that says you can't just shut it down because they have a health violation. But Michelle, I also think real long and hard about this, about what accountability should look like and who's accountable. And if we're in a position as a society where we're not giving inspectors enforcement capacity, then I, I feel a little bit guilty putting accountability squarely at the feet of the inspectors, but then it becomes an entire structural accountability to say, why even bother having expect inspections if you can't actually enforce anything? I agree with you. And there's, and beyond this, there are their powers and, and their, you know, what they have the right to do and what pressures they may or not feel. There's also the resourcing question. We don't have a good sense at this point in these specific situations of how many inspectors are out there. Uh, in other areas where we do have some firmer figures, we sometimes know that there's a few hundred people asked to cover an entire province worth of whatever business is at hand. So quite often, these people are severely under-resourced and don't necessarily have time to do their jobs as thoroughly as they might wish as well. So yeah. there's other structural and systemic issues to consider there in terms of the burden and the onus placed on these inspectors. And I do think some accountability has to come back to the ministry in question, whatever it may happen to be. And that was highlighted well in the Ontario clips that you played. If there are no clear guidelines to what an inspection is actually looking for, if there's no criteria that's well spelled out, how is anyone supposed to do any kind of proper inspection and how are organizations expected to comply? Yeah. Um, one would think that, okay, live cockroaches is enough of a red flag that you probably don't need that written out for you as something to avoid, I would think. <laughs> but, I, but, but you do need some kind of guideline to work with, both for the inspector and the inspectee, so to speak. Uh, so I, I do think there's a, a significant government accountability yeah. that needs to be factored in here. Th this will definitely come up in the next topic that we're doing as well, Joita. The importance of good guidelines and policy and oftentimes good guidelines and policy are free or free-ish, right? Developing good guidelines and good policy, in theory, if you've got the right people doing it, shouldn't cost that much. But Michelle's right to identify the resource side of this, that if you have inspectors who can only do one or two inspections a year at a central kitchen that feeds children, you know, like this is, this is obviously a problem. But when you think about where we're going to spend money as a society, uh, I would like to think that vulnerable children and vulnerable seniors are probably the areas where, uh, where we should be willing to foot an extra bill.
Yeah, I mean, yes or no. I mean, you also want people regularly inspecting things like public transit um, to make yep. sure you don't have uh, trains derailing or. Oh, things like I'm not. That. I mean, I'm not. I'm not yeah. arguing this is a zero. I'm not arguing this is like a one or the other. I'm saying like yeah, when we're my, talking about re like where we're going to put resources as a society, this is probably one of the areas because E. coli outbreaks are bad. Oh, <laughs> Controversial well, take this morning. E. coli yeah. outbreaks are bad. Yeah, no, they are. And and, and my point is, it's very hard to dis determine where priorities are, uh, but I think as a general rule, it's good to think about when you think about accountability questions and um, when and how inspections take place to really make a case for proactive inspections rather than reactive inspections. Um, again, you know, saying that as a general rule, inspection should be done as a, a matter of course, maybe every three months or every six months, uh, especially when you're dealing with vulnerable populations as a way to pro proactively get ahead of any problems uh, rather than waiting for what happens in a lot of cases. Uh, where the system is reactive and somebody calls in and complains and says, you know, I think something's amiss here or my child got sick or, um, you know, uh, I have somebody in a long-term care home and they weren't getting the help that they need and that then precipitates an, an investigation. Um, I think Michelle made some really good points about resourcing and I'm not going to cover the same ground, but I do, uh, I am, I guess, a proponent of the carrot and stick philosophy here where I think providing more resources, improving training, looking at improving standards, being more proactive is sort of the, uh, are, are, are all, um, you know, I, I'll call them positive, positive things that can improve the inspection and accountability landscape. But I think if you look back to Walkerton, uh, where a couple of people, a couple of inspectors actually faced criminal charges uh, as a result of failing to inspect, I think the other side of this, and this is where the stick comes in, I do think there needs to be um, at least in the case of what happened in Calgary, uh, we don't know a lot yet, so there likely will be an, uh, an an investigation. And I think that there there are times, especially when we're dealing with vulnerable populations, where we have to be willing to use the tools that we have at our disposal within the criminal justice system to take action against inspectors who drop the ball, because um, it is a public it's not just a question, it's a public safety question. So while all of what Michelle is saying makes a lot of sense, uh, if people drop the ball, nonetheless, there has to be some accountability for inspectors as well, yeah. if they're not able yes. to if yeah, they're not able to sure. do what they were supposed to do, because we rely on these inspections. I mean, you and I and Michelle, we don't know the first thing about health and safety standards, I suspect it's. So there's a great deal of trust that's put into in these individuals to get it right. And if they're not able to get it right, yes, we have to also help, we have to help them, but we also have to take, be willing to take action when the ball gets dropped. Yeah, so I actually know a little bit about health and safety standards because I've had a pretty diverse work experience before I got into the media, which actually leads to this question. How much of this, Michelle, is about people being a bit ignorant on just how dirty food production, storage, and transportation really is? I think a lot of people would be horrified if they worked one day in a restaurant or at a, store, at a, at a food storage facility in a city core. I think they would be appalled by how dirty it is i'm sure you're right and i suspect that's an aspect of this but only to a degree i mean in the daycare example specifically i i personally am learning exactly how serious e coli can be some of these kids are extraordinarily sick in horrifying ways mm -hmm. uh, parents put out a letter with just like skin crawling descriptions of what their poor kids are dealing with what the families are dealing with it's, it's quite awful so not just to, like, yes, people don't necessarily understand how dirty food safety 
is as a field, but I don't also don't think they necessarily understand the full consequence of being lax on these things. And there are some lines that I think I've just been crossed anyhow. I, I come back once again to the live cockroaches where I know personally just one in this place would have set off a five alarm fire panic on my end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like there are some pretty, I don't know, th- that one to me is, is a line that gets crossed that defies sort of, it goes beyond just ordinary dirt and grime associated with this particular field. And you also have the issue of repeat infractions. Uh, so when that's, there's a track yeah, record in yeah. place, that's where I kind of come back and be like, listen, there, there's been a pattern established here and that's where we need to concentrate the conversation because clearly there has been something amiss beyond what people who are already knowledgeable about this deem to be appropriate. Right. How many failures are you allowed? Like, like how many failures are you allowed to have within some context of understanding of a little bit of uncleanliness versus just a chronic condition of perpetual yeah. violations? Yeah. And, that, and that's where I'm perfectly happy to extend someone some slack and, and say that, no, your first violation is not an automatic out. People clearly, clearly don't think that's the right way to go and they know better than I do. So that's fine. But when there is a pattern of, of enforcement issues discovered, even under the imperfect system that's already in place, then that needs to be tackled. Joita, uh, maybe I could even reframe this question as opposed to framing it in the sense of like how ignorant people are. How might a situation like this allow somebody to rethink the standards that are applied mm-hmm. to a system mm-hmm. of production that's maybe not as clean as we would like it to ideally be. There you go. How's yeah, that? How's that? That's a, it's a good way to put it. And I think, um, first of all, not everybody needs to know everything. So even if people know in a general sense that food uh, handling is not as clean as it as it could be, uh, even if you don't have that firsthand experience, you've never worked in a grocery store or worked uh, in a kitchen in a restaurant, um, much less you know a large scale kitchen that provides food for a large institution. Uh, I think most people in general understand that maybe food security and safety isn't that pr- food preparation and storage isn't the cleanest um, isn't the cleanest job which is why we should be able to rely on inspectors and people who have that detailed knowledge. For example, in Ontario, you need to have a a food handling certificate before you can work at a large-scale commercial kitchen. And I, uh, again, I'm sorry about not being uh, fully aware of of the realities in Alberta, but I would be very curious about what sort of equivalent certification is required, uh, how often... uh, food service workers need to be up need to be updated or upgrade their uh, credentials uh, whether that training needs to be revised uh, these are all things that can happen right out the gate to try and minimize some of those dropping standards uh, above and over that I I'm I know I'm the one person on this panel that constantly goes on about the benefits of public inquiries and I've I know I've gotten pushback where people have said, well, what good does a public inquiry do? I think one of the things that a public inquiry could do, at least in Calgary, is try to get some answers to the key questions about what went wrong uh, and why inspections do not find out, why inspections fail to recognize these problems before they got out of hand. So, And also then find ways to try and prevent some of these standards from declining in the in the rapid yeah. way that they have. So I, I think mm-hmm. this is one of those situations when you consider that we're dealing with vulnerable children, um, that a public inquiry might be a way to go in terms of trying to ensure that some of those standards get met down the line so that these things don't happen again.
Maybe they should just name a special rapporteur. Okay, let's put let's put this one oh, to bed. Come, come, coming up next, the the Toronto area school board and some schools have been removing a bunch of books from school libraries in a process that's called weeding. Seems like there might have been a little bit of a policy misinterpretation here. The panel will dive into it. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Julia Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's jump into the next topic. Students and parents are concerned about Toronto area school libraries removing books from shelves. This story could get a little complicated. Let me see if I can break this down for you piece by piece. The Peel District School Board appears to have been following a Ministry of Education directive to weed out or curate content that was published before 2008. The directive seems to suggest that an equity lens should be applied to books that may be out of touch or out of date. There were quite a few criteria in what should have gone into the weeding process. Parents and students are claiming that some schools were just simply removing books based on the dates books were published. The result is very empty shelves in several library schools. The Ontario Ministry of Education has asked boards to cease the weeding practice for now. Joita, this topic can get a little bit controversial and a little bit confusing and a little bit muddled. Where do you think the conversation should go? It's an interesting one. I mean, at first, one could argue that I shouldn't have pitched it at all because heaven forbid that I give anyone the impression that uh, Toronto and its neighboring uh, environs are this, it, it happened to make up the center of the universe. Uh, it's not a Toronto story. Um, the reason no. I pitched it for a national panel is because there are other stories that have cropped up from time to time. And sometimes we tackle them, sometimes we don't on this panel. But I think uh, you have stories coming out of California where books have uh, been taken off the shelves claiming that they're too progressive. And so regardless of the ideological starting point, um, what this gets into primarily is a larger conversation about um, about ideological debates and about how uh, and, and in what way school libraries uh, become take center stage in culture wars uh, and, and and in discussions and discourses about what it is that children should be exposed to, what kind of literature and writings they should be exposed to. Now, don't get me wrong; uh, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with removing books from a library shelf. I think we can hopefully all agree that if it's a book that is out of date, if it's a, you know, a, a science textbook or something and the information is 50 years out of date, uh, I think there's a pretty solid argument to be made for saying, okay, the information's out of date. Uh, we need to bring in a new book. Um, but you know, it gets a little bit trickier and the waters get muddier when you start to talk about uh, the kinds of literature that are left on uh, the shelves and, um, you know, how you balance the need of uh, of ensuring that students are represented in the materials without also then opening up a whole other can of worms by censuring books uh, that might 
be unpopular or espouse unpopular points of views. And that's, I think, where it gets really complicated. Uh, so that's where it becomes a really interesting story. I, I do want to say that while it's very tempting to stay with the fact that some libraries uh, have removed all books published before 2008, again, it sounds like someone just got lazy. And I don't know if that, to me, is the most interesting part of the story, uh, or it's everything else that didn't get to get make the headlines, but, but it's the undercurrent of back and forth between parents and librarians and students and the Ministry of Education in trying to find some sort of a common ground to make sense of what kind of content should be made available to students. And I think that, to me, is the more interesting and, dare I say, the more controversial question. I Okay, so I'm not all the way convinced this is actually a culture war story. The way that I read it and the way that I understand it actually came a little bit closer to your conclusion that maybe people got a little lazy or misunderstood the policy or the policy and guidance and directive from the ministry wasn't quite clear. But Michelle, I'll give you an opportunity to weigh in on your thoughts on this approach from a few school libraries. Well, it, it, speaking to your point a little bit, I think about the lack of clarity is that I had read the documents differently. To me, the ministry directive was was pretty broad and not that specific. And it was the Peel board that put this 2008 interpretation on things. That was how I read the various documents that have been shared through the media. So that, again, raises questions about where exactly, who, who sets the policy? What, what does the fault lie in this case with one could argue the ministry for being too broad in its directive or the board for its interpretation that has certainly raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, I do think there's aspects of both here in this conversation. I think there is an element of culture war because, again, of how the Peel board opted to interpret things. They are the ones who talked about the equity lens. Uh, they talked about inclusion. They talked about all these all these words that the right will jump on as coded language for culture war, basically. Um, but the 2008 question is, the, I think, the one that's really, really muddied the waters, because I do think that you guys are right, that there are some individual libraries, perhaps, or even at the board level. It's unclear because the board is, has not yet opted to make a really uh, detailed comment on this process. Uh, but at some point, some people did just get rid of stuff published before 2008, full stop, which is a really eyebrow-raising practice, I'd say, uh, by any measure. I don't think anyone agrees that's the way to go. In fact, the province has written to the Peel Board and asked it to stop doing yes. that exact thing. So it has prompted a full-on reversal of that directive. And I do think it's important to say, as, as Joita kind of alluded to earlier, that library weeding is a thing is a thing with a reason, a good reason, not just for science textbooks. And I will argue again that the context of a school matters here, where you have to streamline the information more than in a university, where perhaps there's merit in looking at what old science texts were saying. Um, so you have to keep the, the selections focused and streamlined in areas that don't have a lot of necessarily physical space. Uh, but there's also the issue of, of books that are in physically poor conditions. So library waiting is real, it matters, but it's gone horribly amok in this case, I think. Yeah, yeah, and whether it, or not it's driven, whatever the motivation is, I think we can all agree this process went off the rails. Yeah, Ju Juita, I, I think the reason this tends to fall into the culture war is simply because somebody found the word equity and got their got their underwear in a bunch. Like, like I, ultimately, I think that's what this boils down to. And I do want to be clear about something. The culture war exists on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. It would be super yeah. disingenuous 
dismissive of us to start talking about how the culture war only exists on the right. It very 100%. much exists on the left as well. So, yes, Absolutely. Florida and Alabama have their culture war. California has their culture war, right? Like, the culture war yeah. is interpreted in different ways. So, Juita, that's why I'm almost, like, a little bit... I, I guess I, I see where the culture war conversation comes in because people just don't understand what the word equity means. That's right. And, and equity can mean different things for different people. And if you were to run with the, okay, we're going to remove all the books published before 2008, yes, you may get rid of some very problematic titles uh, from your shelves, you, you know, like out of Africa or books that are just downright racist. But yeah. you also then run the risk of eliminating from your bookshelves uh, books that talk about the experiences of Japanese Canadians, for example. That was one of the examples cited in the uh, global news articles and so now those books mm -hmm. disappear too so it's the kind of it's a blunt instrument which for all intents and purposes has left everybody unhappy and i think what it comes down to is not really having a, a fulsome discussion about providing balanced points of view uh and also whether there's something to be said for exposing students to writings uh that may not be politically correct but then being able to have conversations with students especially after a certain age where they start to think about their books uh critically uh i remember one of the one of the um, the more interesting um, exercises I had to do in high school was I we were told over this uh, we got homework over our summer vacation so over the summer vacation we were told to read over our history textbooks and try and find mistakes and inconsistencies um, and that sort of critical thinking has stayed with me I, I would like to think for the rest of my life because you suddenly realize that not everything that's written in print um, is um, you know that everything should be open to interpretation and critique and I sometimes worry about students not having access to those critical thinking skills. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for exposing to, uh, you know, young people to a variety of ideas, but I don't really know if that's, it's, if that's happening. Granted, yes, you do need to cull the collection a little bit, especially when books are being damaged or they're outdated or there's just not enough space. Uh, but I think there is a more interesting conversation about how uh, and and why we remove books from shelves uh, on the basis of equity. What does equity even mean? And what does it actually do for students when they're not exposed to ideas that they might not otherwise encounter? Yeah, it's also a question about the role of a school library versus a public library versus a university mm -hmm. library, mm -hmm. as both of you have yeah. pointed out. It, it, like, there are different libraries suited to different needs. Joita, I know you said you don't find it particularly interesting, but I find it deeply interesting, the idea of employees or boards or even maybe just an individual librarian completely misunderstanding or arbitrarily applying a government policy. I'm oftentimes harping on about the importance of plain English and plain language and clearly understood guidelines for policies and directives. To me, if I was to say, how can a ministry or a bigger institution try to apply something like a weeding process with an equity lens, You've got to be really clear in the language that you use, make it super plain English and almost make it impossible to misunderstand. Because even as I was reading some of these documents yesterday, trying to get prepared for this, I was like, well, that's kind of confusing language. Right. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think that's part of it, yeah. I, I think that uh, plain language explanations would be to the benefit of uh, not just the people who are tasked with interpreting the 
the, the policy, but also other interested stakeholders, in this case, parents or students and the general public. Uh, so there's a really strong argument, also a really strong accessibility argument to be uh -huh. made oh, yeah, using time. plain yeah. language. It's more inclusive, uh, period. Yeah, it's more inclusive. Uh, but in general, I think the, the more interesting facet of this conversation for me is how exactly did you end up with a policy that got so badly misinterpreted? How many librarians did, the, did they actually consult in coming up with this policy in the first place? Uh, because I think the practice of weeding library collections has been around for a really long time. Um, and when you have policies that are so badly misinter misinterpreted, you've got, really got to ask yourself, to what extent did the Ministry of Education reach out to librarians themselves and ask them to craft a policy? Because these are people who have expertise uh, in managing library collections. That's why you can get an uh, you can in fact get a degree in information uh, management or you know in library management. So it's not just oh you know what pull a random year from a hat ah 2008 okay sure let's just move everything out of our library collections that predate 2008 i mean most librarians uh would i think also have shared our, our consternation with something like this which makes me yeah. wonder why the librarian community wasn't more involved in the policy because it really sounds like that's what ends, ends up happening here when you have a policy that is left up where, where there's so much wiggle room for interpretation and where people are clearly reading it in two completely different ways. I think it really comes down to a lack of consultation with the right people. I, again, I'm not going to sit here and bang the table for excessive consultation because that means nothing in this world ever gets done. But I am inclined to agree that perhaps they could have learned to use librarian language <laughs> in the way they, they made the directive. Because I want to be clear, the way that I read the directive... I did not think the idea was to ban books from before 2008, but maybe I've just got my big brain over here. Michelle, plain language, let, let's wrap up on here. That, well, that's, my, that's my suggestion, it's my solution, but what do you think about maybe uh, this being a case of employees or boards uh, misunderstanding uh, what was pretty confusingly worded directives? It was, yeah, I'm, again, I come back to the fact that I, we, you and I both interpreted things completely differently and the 2008 metric to me came from the board, not the government. Um, so, yeah, plain language, I think, is really crucial. Perhaps some clearer criteria from the government to limit potential board misinterpretation. If, in fact, I'm right that there was board misinterpretation at play and it didn't originate with the government. So, somebody misinterpreted um, this because not every board yeah. in Ontario, every, every school library in Ontario did well, this. This is it. This is I kind of come back to this. Book reading is an annual process and we find ourselves here. And that also points a bit to me to the fact that it lies at the board level in this particular case of someone someplace read things wrong and issued a faulty directive based on government guidance that was itself pretty broad and vague. So, yeah, I think plain language and a bit more specificity would help to limit this kind of thing because it's not going anywhere. Library weeding will continue to happen and has a purpose. So we need to limit this kind of backlash in future because it's, it's it, every board needs to do it. I would also just caution as a concluding thought, not every time the word equity gets used, everyone should get their hackles up. Like in life, I think it's important that no. we don't get defensive and reflexive every time the E word gets used. Okay, let's shelve this topic. Coming up after the break, a major American newspaper is hiring celebrity-specific reporters. One for Tay-Tay, Taylor Swift, and one to cover the Bayhive, Beyonce. The panel will consider the merits of celebrity-specific reporters. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Judy Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic for you. America's biggest newspaper chain is hiring celebrity-specific reporters. Gannett owns over 200 papers across the country, including USA Today, the most widely distributed newspaper in the country. They'll be hiring a reporter to follow the Taylor Swift beat and another exclusive to the Beyonce beat. These roles are on top of existing entertainment reporters. Michelle, why do you want to talk about journalists going deep into the Bay Hive in the world of Swifties? <laughs> because I love talking about journalism, obviously. No, like this just really jumped out at me as some as an, an unusual move. We have talked a certain amount on this panel about the changing journalism landscape, the diminution of local news coverage, the under-resourcing of journalism we've, we've seen here in Canada, most recently, like a round of 1,300 layoffs at a huge media outlet. We know what all of what's happening to this industry. And this is a direction that Gannett is going that has raised a lot of questions, uh, but also a lot of discussion about the potential merits of having someone focusing on people that like it or not do represent something very specific in the culture and are oh, yeah. massive, massive figures and some could argue industries unto themselves. So a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction would probably be to roll their eyes and say, why on earth are you wasting resources on this? But there are other schools of thought at play and uh, this is also just kind of a fun topic. So I thought we'd better <laughs> yeah. run for a while. Yeah, I do think it's fun. <laughs> Joita, I certainly see the value in getting clicks on articles, right? Taylor Swift mm -hmm. will boost your algorithm. Beyonce will boost your algorithm. That'll get your SEO, your search engine optimization through the roof. But if I think about it more broadly, it kind of feels like a misappropriation of resources for a major newspaper chain. You know, if I think my, my initial reaction was it was a joke. I honestly went back and had to, like, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I thought it was, a, it was someone having a laugh, uh, and it was a gag article. Uh, you're right. The Sorry, journalism, no <laughs> I mean, um, you're right in saying that journalism is changing. Journalists um, don't have the same job security that they might have enjoyed even 25 years ago. We know social media has become a source of competition for traditional news media. All of this we do know. Uh, and yes, I think that the, the reason that they have dedicated reporters following Taylor Swift or Beyonce, and I suspect if this works out, they'll have other celebrities getting similar treatment is clearly to generate clickbait. Uh, so I don't deny that from a, maybe from a business standpoint, it makes a certain amount of sense. But even there, I, I find myself questioning because, I mean, look at all the social media. I mean, if you really want to find out what Taylor Swift is doing or if yes. you want the latest on Beyonce, why would you just go to her TikTok or Instagram feed. I mean, what exactly is newsworthy here? They're going to tell us what Beyonce eats for breakfast. Do <laughs> I get to know about Taylor Swift's pre? Like, I, I just, I don't even see the point of yeah. it. So, anyways. No, Ju Juita, that leads me perfectly into this question because one of the ideas that I keep yammering on about with you two and anyone else who will listen on or off the air is the death of monoculture. What used to exist was one generalized pop culture with a couple of subcultures around it. Now everything is a subculture. Specificity is what drives interest. The fact is, 
I could talk every day on the show for six or seven minutes about fantasy football, but somebody who wants to get fantasy football information is going to go to a fantasy football podcast because that's totally. where they want yep. to go. So the question again circles around a monoculture that no longer exists. And Michelle, this is a big industry question, but how can a general interest paper, TV show, radio show effectively cover any specific cultural beat in a way that is going to seem truly authentic to the people who want that specific cultural beat, rather than just saying, hey, we're general interest, we've got a general interest entertainment reporter, and that's that. Well, that's the million-dollar question, and if I had the answer to it, uh, I... It's my next question. It's my next, it's my next question, by the way. I'm going to steal your ideas. All right, well, oh, good. Good to know. Well, good, good, good. Luckily for you, I don't have any ideas for you to steal because I just don't know the answer. This is this is exactly the kind of conundrum that news outlets are bumping up against all the time. And I all I can really do is speak to the challenges that I understand best, which are working for a wire that is, yes, a national publication and has more resources than a lot of small papers, but is a general interest outlet. And we have an entertainment department and they do their best to get into specific subcultures when they can. But this is the, the struggle that all journalists are facing when they work when they write for broad national audiences. There is just too much to cover, and getting really, really deep and specific is difficult, especially yeah. not just because of the resourcing issue, because of exactly what you pointed out that the market is already pretty crowded, and we don't we don't cater to the markets that the podcasts are already serving. We do serve a different purpose. And so there is an inherent tension and struggle to do that kind of coverage. And, and quite often it simply is not done. Yeah. And again, I, I think that people, the, the clicks that you're truly chasing are, are probably going elsewhere. When I say you, that's the general you, Michelle, not, yeah. <laughs> not, not, the, not the clicks that you yourself are chasing, but the general, like the general media apparatus, Chewita. I think there's something about this where I understand that in the case of Beyonce and Taylor Swift, in Beyonce's case, you're talking about 25 years of relevance in pop culture. Okay. In Taylor Swift, it's almost two decades. So I get that maybe you're not chasing the flavor of the day zeitgeist, but I will say in like three or four years, like some of that Taylor Swift stuff is not going to be where it's at today. And all of a sudden you're just going to be picking the new one. But the reporter that you hired to chase Taylor Swift might not be capable of chasing the Olivia Rodrigo or the Ice Spice or whatever mm -hmm. the next thing is. Yeah, maybe. And I think um, I think it comes down to a more central question about who a reporter actually is and what we perceive the role of a reporter to be um, versus say a podcaster. Not everyone who is a, a, you know, a podcaster is necessarily a journalist and, you know, there's, there's something ooh, to be ooh, said. Nope. Ah, nope, ooh, nope, nope. Shots fired over here. <laughs> there is something to be said for, you know, how do you actually deal with this? Well, maybe we talk about bringing in a columnist. So that it's clear that this person isn't actually a reporter. Maybe you're a, I don't know, a Beyonce super fan or something, and you write a column and you try to get the clicks that way. But I think it also leads, leads into these bigger questions about what journalism is and what the role of a journalist has become. Because, I mean, I'm not as concerned about, say, Beyonce disappearing from our zeitgeist and being replaced by somebody else. If you are a journalist, you'll you'll make connections, you'll get to know people, you'll, 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 you'll be able to cover the next best thing. That to me is not as big a concern as the fact that newspapers that pride themselves on objectivity and balanced coverage and what have you, uh, what are they going to become? Are they, uh, like, is it going to become a fan? Is it going to become like, 
you know, is it going to just become an, a, an outlet for fans of a particular celebrity? Because that has yeah. ethical concerns yeah. around, uh, like, what if Beyonce or Taylor Swift does something really unethical? Does this reporter then cover that? Do they brush it under the rug? I have, I, I have a lot of concerns around just the ethics of doing something like this as well. Like, do you... Do you, uh, can you as a news outlet be critical about any of these celebrities and they're, let's say they endorse a, a product that's really damaging or some, they have something really, you know, can you actually criticize a celebrity while spending so many resources to generate clickbait and cover them favorably? I, I, I just, I don't yeah. know. But I, but I feel like there's an inherent assumption that you're going to cover them favorably. And, and yes, that is where I think some of the, for, I, yes, but a reporter would have to cover the controversies and explore the ramifications of the controversies. So I think there is scope within the job description for something a little more interesting than just glorified fan. Yeah, that said, the, 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 there's all, all the other questions about the merits of having the roles in the first place, I think, remain. But I do think the reporter role specifically, um, if approached right, could lead down some more interesting avenues than appears at first blush. Yeah, the, the, the Gannett uh, executives did come out and say this is not just about saying, oh, here's concert reviews or album reviews. It's about thinking about their place in the industry more broadly and the mm -hmm. economic infrastructure around uh, these people, which I think is I, I do think that's interesting. But again, I'm, I'm pretty sure a general interest entertainment report Porter could do that. Handle it. Okay, we are we are over 10 a.m. Eastern time, guys. We're over time. I, I feel bad doing this, but I do want to ask you guys one more question if you guys have a little bit of time for me. Do you? Mm -hmm. I sure do. Okay, we got to be quick on this, though. You got to really give your thesis statement. Joita, you are a media mogul. What are your priorities to run a financially successful but also high-quality outlet? Investigative journalism and try and tackle the issues that matter to people in their day-to-day -day lives. That is an excellent thesis statement. I like that. Michelle, I'm making you a media mogul. You have to run a financially successful but high-quality outlet. What are you doing? Local news um, and quality writing, which itself also kind of leads to some investigative journalism. But oh. I think investing in some good writing would make a lot of difference as well, yeah. no matter what's being covered. Quality writing. I'm going to go a little bit of a combination of both of you. I think at this point, if you want to make a great media outlet that is financially successful, you need to have people who are giving really well-informed, perspective-based analysis. So you're not trying yes. to break the news 24 hours later or 48 hours later, you're bringing a well-researched, well-thought-out column to the mix. Not like an opinion Cheers. piece, a column with perspective and thought. Kind of like what we do every Friday, gang. Michelle, Joita, thank you both for your time today. Michelle, have an awesome weekend. I'll chat with you on Sunday. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. And Joita, you have an amazing weekend as well. Glad you're feeling better. Keep up on the mend, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Again, speaking of shows with incredible perspective and lots of information, you absolutely want to check out The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update. Then Brock Richardson has a really interesting question in his sports chat about the priority access that athletes get to medical resources. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, 
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.